welcome everyone to Running Into the Fog uh, live stream style here with the Joe Bros. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Derek. Good to see you. Good to see you as always. Yep. I like that shirt you got on. Aurora Sports. It's an oldie, but a goodie. It's a classic. I, we I have one of those in a while. I don't have that particular shirt anymore, but I have uh, the long sleeve uh, kind of performance uh, mesh material uh, variation of that shirt. Um, every guest on Running Into the Fog is a special one. Uh, we have another special one today, Dr. John Olzauka from Mercyhurst University, hailing from uh, the big city of Erie, Pennsylvania. John, welcome. To Running welcome, into the thank fog. you. Hi, how are you doing today? We're really good. Episode uh, number 39 here on the podcast. And, uh, you know, we're, we're cranking up the numbers a little bit with this uh, weekly format that we've moved to. 39 and holding, as Mama used to say, when they whatever <laughs> age. That's right. Or maybe it was 29. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's uh, something I remember really, really well. So, John, you, um, you were named interim dean of Mercyhurst University, the Ridge College of Intelligence Studies and Applied Sciences some time ago. And yeah. is it true that that interim tag has been removed? Yes, it has. They didn't come to their senses. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was appointed, yeah, in, interest, still on the website, as you can see. Um, there's a little lag, apparently. Yeah, I was appointed interim. It was last, actually a year ago, um, about right, right about now. And the interim was taken off. It was in the fall. Um, so I am now sort of masquerading as Dean of Ridge College. Um, nice. so, You're yeah. in history. Your, your background is, is in history, right? I am. Yeah, I'm a history professor. I've been here. This is my 17th year at the university. Um, my 25th year of actually teaching right now. Um, um, so yeah, I, I came out as a history student, undergrad, grad, and jumped into it and started teaching and then sort of made my way here. And then suddenly over the last few years, been sort of a jack of all trades and started moving up into administration. So, you know, you and I had a chance to gather for dinner out in Erie, uh, overlooking uh, the lake there in the yeah. Bay. Uh, when was that? Uh, early March or so. And you shared with me in that dinner of what I found to be a really fascinating story. Obviously your, your dissertation, your PhD was in surrounding the industrialization of America in the 1930s. And you shared with me over that meal that we, that we uh, got together that your grandmother was mm -hmm. uh, one of these people known as uh, Rosie the Riveter. Rosie, tell, yeah, she, tell, our, tell our audience a little bit more about what you mean by that. So, yeah. So my grandmother was, it, it was really a, sort of, this is, I actually stumbled upon this story. So this is sort of, it was, um, as I was starting to find my way into history, I started off college, I was an engineering major and I made the switch about my sophomore year to history. And uh, I was taking a couple of classes and I was taking a class, it was called City in U.S. History. And the professor, uh, Michael Frisch, uh, one of the assignments he gave, he wanted us to understand our history as well. Um, so he, he, for a project, he said you had to do an oral history with someone. And, you know, he's like, I realize most you're going to ask for family members, but it can't be a parent. It has to be at least one generation removed. Um, so my grandmother, who actually I grew up with, lived with, we had a double, she lived upstairs and I've known, you know, my whole life. I uh, thought I knew everything about her. I sat down and it was like one of these things, I'm going to crank out this assignment, get it done a couple of days before I'll just sit down, chat with Graham for about a half hour, call it a day, write the paper. And I sat down and it turned out to be one of the most fascinating moments in my discovery in history. Uh, I sat down with her for five, over five hours. Um, and I had tape recorder going too, uh, very fortuitously. And she went through her entire life. And one of the things I learned was 
She was a Rosie the Riveter. She was, uh, when the war broke out, she looked at it as an opportunity to contribute, um, earn extra money. I mean, the family's coming out of the depression and she started working in, at Curtis Airplane or Curtis Wright as it was known at the time. Uh, and she told me the stories about what it was like going into the factory, no industrial experience whatsoever. And it was one of these actually transformative moments for her. I mean, she, after that point, never looked back and worked the rest of her life well after the war. Um, and the irony of it was, is, I, I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I did not, graduate school wasn't even on the radar for me at that point. Uh, and several years later, as I started going to graduate school, I stumbled into the aviation industry, uh, Bell Aircraft initially for my master's, but then I started looking at Curtis. Um, so my grandmother actually became sort of a central piece in when I did the oral histories of workers um, in my dissertation. That's an awesome story. I was really attracted to that story and I think was uh, kind of the basis on which I then asked you to come on this podcast in the first place back in March. Yeah. Eric, what do you think about all that? Well, you know, as a historian myself, I'm uh, fascinated by, uh, you know, what could have gone differently uh, in the history that would have resulted in a different set of outcomes. And I love the story about your grandma, John. I think that's just really, really cool. And, uh, you know, uh, I was sharing earlier that when I was an undergraduate at Madison in history myself, I had the opportunity to meet Studs Terkel uh, when he was on campus giving a lecture. And uh, many years before that, I had actually read his seminal, you know, work uh, working. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of where uh, work is taking us, but uh, you know we, we've got a real sort of economy in flux right now, and I think a lot of that's because of the tension in the labor force and uh, you know people uh, in the trades kind of finding that there's a newfound you know um, sex appeal to you know working with your hands and uh, being out there making things, and uh, we'll get into kind of the globalization topic here in a, in a little bit, but. Uh, before we do, um, you know, is is America on the cusp of a manufacturing renaissance here in the in the years ahead? And if so, is our trades now a viable alternative to you know the yeah. white collar, so to speak? Well, I mean, I think trades are always been sort of there, right? Uh, there was an emphasis, I think, you see coming out of sort of that deindustrialization era. I mean, my generation, for example, you know, my family all grew up in the factories. They worked in the steel mills. And, and, and there was a realization by the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, that, okay, that's not going to be there. Um, you know, I remember sitting down having a conversation with my father, and it was very telling. He's like, look, you need to go to school. This is not a life that's going to be available for you. Um, and, you know, the steel mills closed within a short period of time thereafter. Um, but so th for the, the generation of my family, it was really the emphasis was to go to college. Um, you know, so they sort of continually pushed and pushed and pushed that. But I think the trades were always there. Uh, I think that what's happened, though, is now that it's become more necessary more than ever, uh, because as more people have gone into college, there's created more still of a need that you have for these trades. You need carpenters, you need plumbers, you need all kinds of occupations. Um, I mean, I mentioned to you before when I was in graduate school, I remember finishing up and they were looking for tool and die makers. And it was like, wow, when I learned what they could make, I was wondering why I was at graduate school at that point. Um, so I, you know, I think that's it's there and I think there's opportunities. And I think with this generation, what we're starting to see is we're starting to see students coming out of high school that are evaluating do is college for me? And mm -hmm. what paths do I have? Um, and I think that those opportunities are there for people that want to see them, but they're certainly growing, I would say. Right. Yeah. 
Well, just kind of following on that, uh, as we think about what's going on now with uh, Russia, Ukraine, and uh, you know the fragmentation that I think we're starting to witness on a, on a global basis, uh, the stocks and flows of economic commodities are going to studying uh, that all patrolled equally. Uh, and in fact, if we decide that we're going to cut off Russian oil from Europe, uh, there's a different kind of oil that is going to be coming into that, uh, you know, production chain. And, and ultimately, if those wells in Siberia go dormant, they got to redrill them. This isn't just a matter of turning a spigot on and off. This is a matter of taking supply out of the global economy. And so, you know, as we see that fragmentation happen and the sanctions against Russia grow increasingly indifferent, in at least as far as Putin's concerned, it would seem, uh, and China beginning to rattle some sabers here and there, uh, what is the future of our world? Is Are we going to continue this sort of trend of integration where, you know, there's this greater and greater sort of centralized almost uh, coordination of economic production and specialization globally? Or do you think this is going to become a little more decentralized? And uh, and again, speaking as an American industrial historian, I've realized that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, when I went to graduate school, uh, one of the faculty members that they had over at uh, SUNY Binghamton was Emmanuel Wallerstein. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Wallerstein had this concept of world systems, right? And he saw sort of capitalism and sort of the domination and the growth of it. And, and it was looking at history, not necessarily by borders, but by economic structures. Um, and he argued with the end of the Cold War, you saw sort of like what they call the end of history so to speak, in the fragmentation of it. Um, you know, there could be certainly a case made that what we're seeing is that fragmentation, right? That the, the it's changing and, and shifting dramatically. Um, you know, I remember sitting down when we were, in, when um, Derek was in, in, in here in March and we were talking about what was going on in Russia. It was just sort of, it, it's illogical on a certain level uh, that that's sort of unfolding and happening the way it is. And, and it's, you know, they're reinventing the narrative, it seems like on a daily basis almost. Right, exactly. I, I remember that part of the story, but I also remember the story in March of you and your good buddy and your families vacationing together. And then the kids start dating and you're saying, we have to take vacations <laughs> off the table for a while. There was that as well too. <laughs> yes, my son is dating his girlfriend, uh, is someone that we're close friends with the family with. We've known since they've been friends since kindergarten. They're suddenly, yes, in this, very uh well it's a good relationship i should say but yeah so yeah yeah we did, did. vacations are off the table definitely vacations are off the table at least for a few years until uh until you don't have to worry so much about if my son was listening right now on the podcast he would be horrified <laughs> having this conversation with him oh you know what when they say running into the fog that means uh, anything and everything in between um yeah. you know our two ears yeah. john when you think about young people these days mm -hmm. and all that they've been through, you know, you, you have tons of young people coming mm -hmm. through the doorways of Mercyhurst University and all that they've been through, you know, post pandemic or late stage pandemic, wherever you might sit on the, the spectrum of where we are actually at on that continuum. You, what do you advise young people these days who show up at the doorsteps of a premier private Catholic institution like Mercyhurst and when they're especially thinking about the ways to apply their interest sets mm -hmm. to something that can translate toward meaningful work, you know, for a, 
a, a career in intelligence or applied sciences, such as the, the area of Mercyhurst that you represent, what are some of the what are some of the foundational things that you talk about our our young people with today that helps you navigate or helps them more more importantly navigate the fog of secondary education and whether it's for them? That, that's a great question. So, um, and I'm sort of going to approach it from a personal level. I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 25 years in higher education. And, uh, you know, it, I, I've gotten to know my students all really well. I mean, that's one of the nice things about teaching at a smaller school. But when you start to sort of go through it yourself, um, I have a son who is now in his, finishing his second year of college. Um, and, you know, uh, having done college, unlike my parents who didn't and couldn't really offer advice, I thought I had a lot of good sage wisdom to pass along to him. Uh, what I came to realize, though, was that as an 18-year-old, his view of the world was very sort of limited. Um, he had little concept beyond the classes. It's like, okay, I go to English, I go to science, I go to this, but what do you begin to do beyond that when you go to college? What does that translate into? Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I mean, you know, I have conversations with students in Intel. They come in, they don't really know what it is, and they, it's like, well, it's a lot of different things, and, you know, um, just because you can be a history major doesn't mean you have to be a social studies teacher. So the, the one thing I, I try to encourage students to do is to really sort of find what their passion is, find what they like um, and begin to pursue it. Uh, there's this tendency at times, and I, and I fell prey to that, uh, where you start to look and say, okay, what's this gonna translate into a job for me? And not thinking about, okay, well, I'm gonna be doing this for 40 years. Am I gonna truly enjoy it? Um, and finding what your bliss is, so to speak. Uh, I resisted history, I mean, a, a lot. And, you know, my son, it's sort of like, it's, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and what you come to realize is you don't really know a lot. And, you know, so what are these programs about? What are these uh, um, areas of study? You know, what's Intel? What's criminal justice? What does all of that mean? So uh, the benefit of a liberal arts education is, you know, you try to encourage students to take a little bit of everything and pursue what they're interested in. And hopefully they find out what they really truly like. And I believe if, I mean, if you find what your field you're interested in school, what area, what you can devote yourself to, and you sort of really immerse yourself in that, I think that's going to put you on the path to success. So, you know, don't be afraid, uh, is my advice, I, to try different things, to move outside your comfort zone um, and pursue what you're interested in. Um, you know, I always tell history majors, it's like, look, if you really love this, you'll do well, you'll excel. And the, you're learning skills that you don't really realize that you can apply in a whole host of different areas. Uh, I encourage them not to go to Intel, but uh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's. I'll bet you do. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's interesting. It's interesting, right? And, you know, and, and in fairness, too, I mean, I'm going to say in the last couple of years, the resiliency I see with these kids is just, it's, it's amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I was, if I, when I was 18 as a freshman, if I would have had the presence to handle myself the way they do, Right. right. Uh, I've just been amazed uh, at the resiliency uh, of them. And they're going to come out all on this stronger, I think, in the end. Um, yeah. Right on. Hey, yeah. and by the way, that's how I ended up a history major, uh, <laughs> is I, I started out a political science major, and man, did I hate politics. <laughs> I, I, I still got a political science degree, by the way, and I, I joke that you know, I spent four years getting a political science degree at UW-Madison, and I, it only taught me one thing, mm -hmm. politics makes you dumber. <laughs> uh, and ultimately, the exposure from political science got me into international relations, mm -hmm. and that then meant I could take history classes and have them double count. So yeah. I ended up 
declaring a third major in history. And, and that's how I ended up as really, I identify myself as a historian, not a businessman these yeah. days. And I would, I would actually credit history as the reason I got into the intelligence business, because it's that fork in the road. If they'd gone left instead of right, yeah. you know, and back here, they would have gone left instead of right. And they wouldn't even gotten to that fork, you know, sort of reverse engineering events through time. I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, I, you know, I was sort of the same way. I, I started off in engineering and the idea was, you know, you get something applicable, right? You know, my, my father was a steel worker, had no college education. My mom had an eighth grade education. And the idea was school was important and, you know, get something that you can get a job in. And okay, not knowing much of anything, engineering seemed to make sense. And I really, I just, I resisted history. I mean, I liked that I didn't have the best teachers in high school necessarily at the time. Um, and I just, the engineering, it was just like, it was like oil and water for me. It just was, it was a struggle. And, uh, and I liked math and I liked science. Uh, I took a history course and I stumbled into what happened to be probably one of the best professors at the University of Buffalo. And I was just mesmerized. And I was like, this is not history, like social studies that I remember. And I was just taken away from it and, and, you know, took a next class on the Byzantine empire, thinking that eradicate any interest I have in history. Right. You know, at that point, um, but it was just, I was just drawn to it. Um, yeah. So you're now, you're now among people who casually mention the emperor Paleologos in business <laughs> as I did yesterday, Derek, as we were talking about iconography for the, for our book project. Um, the, the, uh, the family cipher of Paleologos was the bicephalus eagle. Uh, and, you know, that's some of the iconography that we're actually going to use in a book project we've got up coming up this summer. Nice. Well, speaking of science and technology, before you go there, Derek, I got to do one quick thing. And that is I got to scan the PO app for today. And I'm going to go ahead and replace our uh, spotlight with this. I'm going to add myself to it so you can see what I'm doing here just real quick. I opened the app called PoApp uh, on my iPhone, and I'm going to hit scan QR code, just like that. I am now scanning the QR code, and I am redeeming the PoApp from this session today. So if you haven't done that yet, uh, please go ahead and do that. Open this page in PoApp. You now see that I have been minting the proof of attendance protocol for today's first half of our session together and minted. Uh, I now have that token. See how easy that was? And Waleed, thanks for the idea. Uh, William Bushy, thanks for featuring that. Uh, I encourage everybody to go ahead and do that. Derek, you have the floor back. Sorry, I had to do that quick ad. <laughs> no, no problem at all. Um, yeah, so last week we had Craig Fleischer on here talking about a book project. You, you have a book out there, right, John? Can you describe what that book is about? Sure. Uh, it's a book on the 1930s, actually. It's a narrative. And uh, we wrote it. I actually, a team wrote it. So a few years ago, we had a class we would have for freshmen. The idea was to introduce them to college. And the idea is that, you know, history, I mean, all kinds of fields, we cross disciplines, right? So I, you know, I see myself as a historian. If you come into my class, I mean, there's a lot of literature in other areas that you're going to get technology, all kinds of different things. So I sat down with a couple of colleagues of mine, one an English professor and one a communications professor, and we created this freshman class. It was called uh, America in the 1930s. And the idea was to try to introduce them to all areas and immerse them in American society in the 30s. And we were looking for a textbook and um, we approached Syracuse University because they had a decade series that was, you know, the 1920s, 19 well, 30s, we thought, 40s, 50s, and so on. And we asked about the 30s, and they didn't have one. And uh, then we asked, we said, well, you want you want one. 
Um, so we sat down and collaborated on this book, uh, America in the 1930s. Um, and it was, it was, it was, it was different for me in the sense I wasn't writing scholarly in the sense it's like, I'm writing for journals where it's, I'm writing for the academic, for, for academia. The idea was for freshmen and for even high school seniors and, and a very accessible narrative. Uh, so it was fun. It was, there was a creative side to it that I really enjoyed. Um, so you go through and it, it's, you know, traditionally you get a lot of politics, you know, we'll talk about the Hoover administration and, and Franklin Roosevelt, but you know, there's a chapter on the working class movements of the 1930s and the mass uh, insurrections you saw with the working class. Uh, we've got stuff on writers and poets and artists. And so it's, it's truly sort of this um, very interdisciplinary study of the 1930s. So. And did you write that on your own or did you have a co-author or a team? Uh, no, I collaborated with two colleagues of mine, um, okay. Brian Sheridan, uh, professor in communications here, and Marnie Sullivan, who used to be an English professor here. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, no, uh, maybe Tim, we can get a link to, to John's book put into the chat in case anybody wants to check it out. It's a great, great idea. University. So. What are, John, what are some of the other uh, foundational elements of your, um, whether it be childhood all the way up to where you're at today that have, I guess, uh, equipped you with the gifts required to be a dean? Of a of a university. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, at a certain level, I mean, if you were to ask me, I'm being honest. I sort of stumbled into this, but I I, I don't know. I mean, I look at it. I, I never saw myself as an administrator. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, when I went to uh, for my PhD, my plan was to be a teacher scholar, um, and I enjoyed the creativity part of it. Um, and it was probably about six years ago. A little longer actually maybe i was asked to be dean or chair of the history department um and i reluctantly i mean i resisted it for a number of years uh and um yeah there it is so uh, yes. yeah um and what happened was uh i actually i liked it strangely enough i liked being chair um i liked actually being able to work with my colleagues being mentor being able to mentor young faculty um, and then I thought I was done with it. And the next thing I know, I became an associate dean. Um, so uh, I sort of stumbled into it. Uh, but I, I enjoy the aspect of it. I, I, I look at it as uh, I, I hope that I'm doing some good work for the university. I'm working with some great um, uh, leaders here at the university. I mean, there's an, a fresh leadership team. There's a lot of energy. It's exciting. Uh, there's a lot of challenges in higher education right now. And um, I think that one of the things that it sort of does and the opportunities here at Mercy Earth is sort of like feed some creativity. Um, uh, I really, oddly enough, when I was in high school, I was an art major. Uh, so uh, there's that sort of creative side that I sort of uh, really try to pursue. And I think that there is that here. Um, and I enjoy working with, especially with young faculty um, and students. I mean, that's the key here. I mean, that's the end of the day, what's important. Speaking of young faculty, I know we have at least uh, one who I think maybe she's still on this call, but uh, she had to leave. Had to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, Lindy Smart, you know, you yes. were part of the leadership team at Mercyhurst that brought Lindy in, a, a bit of a non-traditional, mm -hmm. non-academic, if you will, even though she has three or four degrees from Mercyhurst itself. Yeah. But what was it about Lindy's background, if you can just kind of share a little bit, that that attracted her as a the true candidate for that position as executive director of Intel Studies, I'm going to assume it was because of the corporate experience yep. that she had coming from Target. But was there other things? And you know, I guess if you can parlay that to 
how do you see, because you, you equip young professionals who mm-hmm. want to go both public sector and private sector, yep. right? What do you think Lindy's gifts or other gifts of the administrative team there now at, at Mercyhurst are that, that will allow you to continue to kind of see through that charter? see through that sure. vision of equipping people both for private and public sector. Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I think first and foremost, I mean, Lindy does bring the corporate side to it. And I think that that really sort of shores up something that we desperately needed here at the program. Um, you know, I had had, when I, when I came into this position as associate, as, as Dean rather, interim Dean, um, I began talking to a lot of the alum and tried to get some sense as to what the program was and, and the future of it, the projections of it. And um, more and more became clear that, you know, we've done a lot with national security. We've done a lot sort of uh, on the government side of it, but it was a need to sort of balance it out and do more sort of competitive intelligence. Um, and I began to meet with a lot of the alum and that's actually how I sort of met, connected with Lindy. So I, I think she brings that and it's going to make it stronger. There is a tremendous amount of interest with our students that are really interested in sort of entering the corporate sector here. Uh, we're seeing a dramatic shift. I mean, whereas when I came here in 05 and you had sort of still the students coming in from that 9-11 era, uh, it's very different now. Um, but that's not to say that we don't do both. We want to do them equally well. So I, I think that there's, she has a skill set that is going to be very important for us. Uh, and she's going to help the program grow. And, and the other thing is, I think Lindy really understands Mercyhurst, um, our mission, our, our sense of identity, the importance of a liberal arts education. I mean, that's still at the cornerstone, even though we're training professionals, is the idea to teach people to think critically, liberal arts, you know, communicate well. Um, so you're gonna get that liberal arts foundation. And Lindy understands that mission. She understands the mission of the Sisters of Mercy. Um, and I think it's, it's a fascinating story. I mean, if you think about it, here we are approaching our third year anniversary we have one of our successful alums now stepping back and returning to Erie of all places uh, to come lead this program. Uh, and the first woman to lead the intelligence studies program as well uh, from a school founded by women, four yeah. women. I mean, so it, it's fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of sort of interesting points that sort of stand out here, um, but it's, it, it's exciting. I think um, I'm really excited as to where this program is going to go. All of that tied together would probably make, Rosie the Riveters, real proud. Yeah, right? right? Yeah. Eric, so. what do you think about all this? Well, you know, I know that one of Lindy's passions is the diversity, equity, and inclusion priorities that I think have moved to the uh, forefront of a lot of our organization's agenda uh, here in the last couple of years in the wake of George Floyd and uh, many other things that are, that are going on. And uh, the sort of historically uh, underprivileged uh, communities out there that really have different perspectives on reality, which is sort of one of the one of our, uh, you know, points of view on intelligence work is, uh, if you just got three middle aged white guys, I mean, we probably see the world from largely the same point of view, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, when you've got a diversity of experience and thought and opinion and background and priorities, values, uh, you know, culture, it's, it's those diverse points of view that really allow intelligence to take on a much higher resolution picture of the truth. And that's ultimately what we need in order to be effective and actionable and have our work products be actionable. So maybe as we kind of wind down unthinkable, I'm gonna make a call to action here while you're responding to that, John, uh, suggesting that all you social streamers 
on uh, the social platforms. Join us over on the more intimate Unspeakable. Uh, and, uh, you know, I forgot to greet our Russian uh, botnet uh, observers, by the way. I'll, I'll say goodbye here in a moment to them when we cut them off. But thoughts on that, the whole DEI kind of priority and, and as it uh, I, I think there's an argument to be made that suggests that DEI is a competitive advantage. Maybe react to that. That's interesting. You know, I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, I think, you know, what any field, any profession benefits by inclusion. Um, the more you have, the better you're going to have in terms of uh, a, a corporation, a business, an entity, education, any system that you have in place. Uh, you want to have sort of a, a, a wide variety that represents a, a cross-section of, of, you know, your audience, your consumers, your your uh, community. Um, I think it makes it stronger. So, I'm uh, yeah, I, I think that Lindy's going to do a lot with that. I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, we as an institution, uh, we are committed to the idea of diversity and inclusion. Um, and I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity um, and I do, I think, you know, what happens is you become really sort of stale if you have sort of, again, the three of us, if we were sitting around, um, you know, mapping out and planning things, we would have a very specific perspective and, and as opposed to looking at it from a different vantage point, um, you know, right I mean, it, it speaks to, you know, you look at history, that's a perfect example, you know, where you have sort of these grand political narratives and what you saw in the 60s and 70s, the diffusion of history, where you start to look at African-American history, women's history, ethnic history, working class history. And what's happened is it made our understanding of the past richer. Um, I think it's sort of the same concept here. Outstanding. Well, uh, for those of you watching on social, scan that QR code and join us on the bridge. Uh, and until then, uh, until next Tuesday, Goodbye for now, and Derek, I'll turn this back to you.